Let's then come before the Lord in a, pray, in, a, in a prayer of illumination. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we're about to open your word. And we love to hear the good news of the gospel from it. We pray that you would now bless the one who must bring that word. May clarity be given to speech. May clarity be given to insight. And may the communication of your gospel be powerful and pressing upon our hearts. We pray for those that hear the word. May your spirit equip and enable us to understand and to rejoice in the good news of the gospel. May our hearts thrill at the sound of your grace in Jesus Christ. And so bless us all we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to page 679. 679 is where you find Isaiah 7. And we're going to read the verses 10 through 17 before we turn to our text, which is in Luke 2. Isaiah 7, we'll first read the verses 10 through 17. This is one of those messianic prophecies found in the book of Isaiah that are so familiar to us. Isaiah 7, 9, and 11 all contain Christmas prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. This one deals with the virgin conception and birth of Jesus. And so we'll read how the Lord prepared His people to anticipate Christmas morning. Isaiah 7, at verse 10. Hear the word of God. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Then turn to page 1019. 1019, that's Luke 2 at verse 1. We're going to read the Christmas story. Luke 2, we'll start at verse 1. We'll read to verse 20. These very familiar and very encouraging words. Luke 2, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy 
that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. And the angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Thus for the reading of God's holy word, may he now bless that word to us. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder if we appreciate as we ought how much perspective plays in our experience of life. Let me offer an example to try to illustrate what I mean. I want to use the example of a sandwich, a peanut butter and jam sandwich to be precise. I'm guessing that for most, if not all of our young people, our young Boys and girls, when you come home from school, if mom's got a a snack for you waiting that you can enjoy before you go out and play again, before you go and do whatever it is that you get to do after school, if that snack were uh, some drink plus a, a bit of a peanut butter and jam sandwich, you would just scoop it up and it would be consumed in three bites and off you'd go running to play and to have fun. That's how it was in my house. I'm sure that's how it is in most of your homes as well. But that's not the way it is in most homes, or not in many homes within our world. You think of our world, you think of our society, you think of, or not our society, you think of our, our, our globe, and you think of many of the cultures, many of the societies that are impoverished. Places where people live on $2 a day. People that live in refugee camps. People that live in war-torn places. People that live in economic distress. There are no peanut butter and jam sandwiches to have. There are no free snacks, easy snacks that mom gets to provide for the kids when they come home from school. Maybe the kids aren't even coming home from school. Maybe they're going to work because they have to provide for the family. And that's not only true in places beyond us. That's true even within our own society, within Canadian culture. Those of us that are involved in, in, in social services, that are involved in things like family and children's services, know that there are a lot of broken, very, very broken, profoundly broken families and homes within our own culture. And indeed, we're trained, we're taught to expect if you get a child, one that's a little older, that they might have issues with food. Because mom and dad have not been providing the necessities of life. Mom and dad haven't given them meals, haven't given them supper, lunch, or breakfast, let alone a peanut butter and jam sandwich when they come home from school. Now imagine that one of those kids who have been mistreated, who have been suffering, who have not enjoyed those things, has come over to your house one day, has been invited by you to come over, and there's that plate with those sandwiches on it, and you grab a, a bite and off you go, consuming it as you go down the, the stairs to play video games and 
And your friend who's not ever experienced any of these things is just standing there looking at that bread, looking at those sandwiches, absolutely unsure what to do. What am I supposed to do? And mom says, it's okay, you can have one. And the very thought that someone would give them food, that someone would provide them this gift, fills their hearts with such wonder. Tears come to their eyes as they take the bread and they chew each bite carefully. They don't scarf it down. They savor every bite because to them, that peanut butter and jam sandwich is a gift beyond compare. What's the difference? The difference is perspective. The difference is how we see it. Some of us see it as ordinary, as regular, as just the way it is. We don't think twice about it. Some of us see it as precious, as gracious, as good. We have that same problem when it comes to Christmas. Because there's a baby born on Christmas, and that can be for us who have heard the story of Christmas all our lives. How many times have we not heard the story of Christmas? At least once a year, probably more like twice a year because, of course, in our study of the Catechism, we do Lord's Day 14 and we talk about the holy conception and birth of Jesus. And so we've, we've heard, the, well, take your age and multiply it by two. That's how many times you've probably heard the Christmas story. And that can get then kind of old. It can get kind of ordinary. It can get like that sandwich you grab and don't think twice about. You come to church, you, you hear the thing. Or maybe... Maybe you come to church precisely because it's so ordinary, expecting something extraordinary. You come and you say, well, there better be something I haven't heard before. There better be something so compelling, so amazing that I'm moved, that I'm inspired, that I'm satisfied. Precisely because it's so ordinary. It's a baby born on Christmas morning. But we need a new perspective then we need to have a perspective that stands in awe of this baby. One that says, that is enough. That is enough for me to know He was born. That is enough. We need to see Jesus with the eyes of faith. Because it's not Jesus that changes. It's not Jesus who needs to change. It's our perspective on Him that needs to change. Our perspective on this very ordinary event before it is very or well it's not all ordinary of course it's not all, all ordinary given the messiah's task given what jesus had come to do the confirmation of his coming in the flesh on christmas morning came with some rather glorious revelations jesus is revealed to us in luke 2 as a messiah with a global ministry We see that in the very opening verses where Caesar and Quirinius are levers pulled by God to put in motion the entire Roman world so that one person, the one who was inside the womb of Mary, gets moved from Nazareth to Bethlehem. There were a lot easier ways for God to make this happen. But he wanted to use Caesar, he wanted to use Quirinius, he wanted to use the powers of the day. He wanted to say, look, this is a global event of global significance. And it is a most glorious work. Those angels, we don't know if they were singing. I know that we just said, or just sang, that they sang glory to God in the highest. We don't know that that's true. It was an army, by the way, An army of angels that appeared to the shepherds saying, peace on earth. What a contrast. An army of angels saying, peace on earth. A peace 
that has national, international significance. A peace that has interpersonal significance, relational significance. The the coming of Jesus changes global politics. The coming of Jesus changes marriages, changes relationships, friendships. But above all else, the coming of Jesus changes our peace with God. We are by nature at war with God. God is angry with us as sinners. And when Jesus comes, there is now peace on earth. How, 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 how much do those who are in war-torn places long for peace? Places like the Ukraine. Some of our great-grandparents, our grandparents, can remember the time of the war, Second World War, and how they longed for peace. How great is the peace that Jesus has brought on this earth. And brought by doing what is for us a very gruesome task. It was a global work. It was a glorious work. But it was a gruesome work. Taking on flesh so that He might nail it to a tree. And to suffer cruelty unknown. Daily bearing the burden of your crushing judgment that you might never know the pain of your sin. This is an amazing... This, this is the moment of historical grandeur this is as great a day as there can be as there's ever been in the history of the world the birth of jesus on christmas morning now that surely deserves an inspiring sign that surely deserves some manifestation in the very heavens of who god is and what he's done Indeed, isn't that very much what we want with respect to the coming of Jesus, with respect to the whole Gospel message, with respect to everything we believe. We want convincing, inspiring truth that values even our contribution to the question of salvation. You see, an inspiring revelation of the birth of this on what this really means would help all of us in our own uncertainty, in our own doubt. We all have questions, don't we, at times? Quiet moments, maybe when we're in bed at night by ourselves. Maybe they're when we're with our friends. Maybe they're questions that that are, is it true? How do we know it's true? Our present lives and our future lives are being shaped entirely oriented completely to this truth of the gospel we're banking on it being true but what if we're wrong we sometimes wonder that don't we we sometimes question that and then wouldn't it be wonderful wouldn't it be great if a compelling objective even recorded by nonpartisan, neutral persons sign were provided. Some celestial event that everyone over all of the world wrote about in their notes. You know how the, the flood is told in all cultures of the, of the world. Every, every culture of the society has a flood story. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every culture in the society 
had a story about some meteor they saw in the night sky on December 25th, 0 AD. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, they, if there was some, some earthquake, some, some event, some, some moment that everybody no, notes and jots down. And as we study then we go, see, see, there's the proof that it's true. Or, or maybe an angel sent to Caesar, to, to Caesar Augustus, Octavius, the great, the greatest of all Caesars. And imagine that he then wrote in his notes, in his journal, restored in the library and now still accessible to us that we could go, Caesar himself says Jesus was born on Christmas morning. How about an angel sent to every leader on the earth? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be encouraging? Wouldn't that enable us to no longer doubt? But instead, we get angels sent to a priest in the temple, to a young girl, to a carpenter, and to shepherds abiding in their fields nearby. Wouldn't it have been better if the sign of Jesus had been bigger, more global, more consistent with who He is. And wouldn't that help us in our witness to the world? An inspiring sign would convince our world, surely, of the truth of what we believe. It would calm our doubts, but it would also captivate our neighbors. The world is constantly telling us that our faith is foolish, situating it as as mythology, as some made-up story by deluded people way back when. Wouldn't it be great if some archaeologist were to suddenly dig up a newspaper in one of their digs, maybe the Roman Times, which has on its front page a story about angels and stars and a baby with a halo and choirs singing glory to God in the highest. Wouldn't that be convincing to our world? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Let's at least admit that that's something we'd want. That that's something we'd like. Because by admitting it, we can deal with the problem of it. For beneath this pious desire to be ourselves convinced and to see our world convinced of the truth of our faith, beneath this pious veneer is a dark truth that we may not want to admit on Christmas morning. A day for celebrating. A day for getting together with family and friends. But a day that exposes a darkness in our hearts. Because Christmas, you understand, at its very heart, is a day where we're called to believe. Called to trust. To trust someone else. And to trust that someone else with our whole life. To surrender And give ourselves to Him so that whatever He says we do, whatever He wants we accept, whatever He commands we obey. To be sure, to give ourselves in confident service because we are utterly convinced that the One whom we trust is true and faithful. But still, Christmas Day is a day to worship. A day to bow A day to say King of kings and Lord of lords and to give our lives to Him. And the truth is, none of us likes that position of humility, of lowliness, of needing, of being dependent upon another. We don't mind that He's come to get us to heaven. We're not so keen 
on his claiming our entire thinking, emotions, relationships, work, studies, everything. We don't like to be under Jesus. That's why we maybe like the baby Jesus because he's not, he's not terrifying. He's not demanding. He's cute. We can hold him in our arms rather than have him hold us in his. Indeed, our need for God to prove himself to us is just another expression of our refusal to bend the knee in worship of God. We want God to convince us in a way that we find convincing. We want to be able to weigh the evidence to be the jury that deliberates after everyone's had their say. And God knows this. God knows that in our hearts is this this temptation to sit in judgment on Him. That's exactly what happened with Ahaz. When Isaiah came and said, ask for a sign, deep as Sheol, high as heaven. Oh, no, says Ahaz, I wouldn't do that. Ahaz is not being pious. Ahaz is being rebellious. And God says, fine, then I'll give you a sign. And the sign you get is a baby. A baby, that's your sign. A baby, as we read in Luke 2, verse 12, in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, you will know that in an effort to make more of this than there is, preachers will go on and on about the swaddling cloths and the manger. Swaddling cloths are what shepherds used to wrap their newborn lambs in, the lambs that were going to go sacrifice in Jerusalem because these were Bethlehem shepherds outside of Jerusalem. They kept flocks for the ministry of Jerusalem. Jesus is the swaddled lamb. The manger is where lambs were put when they were born. Manger was where you put that helpless creature that needed the help of the shepherd in order to be, uh, in order to survive. Preachers make a lot out of the swaddling cloths and the manger. Painters do too. You'll notice that the painters of this story paint the birth of Jesus with some divine light illuminating the child in the manger with a halo above his head with animals bowing in worship before him. But none of that's true. None of that's true at all. Essentially what the angels were saying to the shepherds was you're going to get a sign and and here's the sign. You know what the sign is, shepherds? The sign that all of this is true, that, that God has a global mission, that God has a glorious work, that God has a gruesome task to fulfill. You want to know what the sign that peace on earth has come is? The sign is a baby. Born in the same way that every baby is born. Wrapped in the same way that every baby is wrapped. Laid in a manger the way every baby was laid in a manger. The angel says, here's your sign. It's nothing fantastic. It's nothing remarkable. It's so very ordinary. It's a baby born on Christmas morning. Just a normal baby. To borrow the words of John Calvin on this text, The angel meets the prejudice of the shepherds which might naturally hinder the faith of them for what a mockery it is 
that he whom God has sent to be the king and the only savior is seen lying in a manger. That the mean and despicable condition in which Christ was, was might not deter the shepherds from believing in Christ. The angels tell them beforehand what they would see. Calvin's saying, it's so ordinary, so lowly a, a sign, so insignificant a witness that if the shepherds had seen it, they would never have realized what it was had they not been told this is the sign. And the truth is, since those days, nothing has changed. Nothing changed after our Lord was born when He took up the work that He was given, when He walked upon the earth and ministered with His Word and with His majesty. His glory, you'll remember, is hidden under the humble form of a mere man of a destitute and despised man. The leaders of the Jews rejected him because they thought they could. People today reject Jesus because they don't think that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. They don't tremble at the thought of who it is that they're rejecting because he was just a historical figure. He's just a man, just a baby born on Christmas morning. For people today, the simple, ordinary message of that baby born that He's come to save you from your sins and to bring peace on earth and goodwill to men seems too naive, too unreal, too plain. And to quote Calvin again, this method of proceeding which might appear to the view of men absurd and almost ridiculous, the Lord pursues us with every day. Sending down to us from heaven the word of the gospel. He enjoins us to embrace Christ crucified, which, and holds out to us rather the signs of earthly and fading elements, and which raise us to the glory of a blessed immortality. Having promised to us spiritual righteousness, he places before our eyes a little water and a small portion of bread and wine. And He seals with them the eternal life of the soul. It seems so ordinary, so meaning. How can bread and wine do any of that? How can a baby be the Savior of the world? But it is precisely the ordinariness that exposes the truth of the Christmas message. Exposes the truth of who we are. Because as we come to see the baby in the manger, we are now confronted with the question, do you know who He is? Are we those who worship at the Word of God, trusting Him for His gift of grace? Do we see the ordinary, the normal revelation, the simple Word of God that in this baby is salvation found? Do we trust that? Or do we demand from God more? Do we demand greater evidence? Do we demand a greater display? Do we demand something more appealing? Something more compelling? Do we stand in judgment of Him? Do we see who this baby is and what He's come to do? 
One of the reasons why we struggle with seeing that and another reason for why we want to be moved by signs and wonders is that such an inspiring event aligns with our sense of life's problem. What is the biggest problem of life, do you think? What is, if you, I mean, there's many problems in life. Of course there are. But what is the greatest problem in life? My guess is if we were to pull the congregation, we'd, imet, we'd find that the biggest problem of, of life is motivation, inspiration. As in, we don't have enough of it. For so many of us, our job is boring. It doesn't really move us. Our teaching is boring. Or our teachers, rather, is boring. They don't motivate us to learn. Our church is boring. There's no excitement in the worship service. Everything's boring. And we want exciting. We want inspiring. We want motivating. And underneath this self-perception is the idea that if we were motivated... We would do great things. The sky would be the limit. Success, not always financial, but emotional and mental, being fulfilled would be possible if we were finally motivated, if we were finally excited about something. And we just need the right person to come along and get us all worked up. It's a lie, of course. It's the echo of an addict saying, I can quit at any time. It's the echo of that blame shifting we all do that began in the beginning when we said it was the woman you gave me. It was the devil who made me do it. We want to believe that if you, if someone else manages to do it right, say it right, explain it well, inspire us, then we will get excited. But you see, the problem is our preacher, our teacher, our parent, our boss, they're not enough. And the depths of our need are left untouched. We don't want to admit that the real problem in life isn't found in others, but in me. We do sometimes sense this need. When that guilt and shame rises in our hearts, when we lay in our beds and we remember what we've done and the grief of it grips us. When we have to face the question of eternity, maybe we're diagnosed with something, maybe we're in in an accident and, and the reality of our frailty is brought to us and suddenly we're made to think, what if I died? Would I be welcomed by God? The echo of our need is displayed in those moments when we try to do better, when we commit ourselves to being better, when we say, I'm not going to do it again. And then we do. Unable to overcome the power of sin in our own lives. We get a sense of the need of our, of our need rather, the depths of our need when we struggle the brokenness of our bodies because of age, of our relationships, because of selfishness, of so much in this life, the dust of sin just ruining everything. And it's when we understand just how deeply broken we are 
and how desperately in need of grace we are. That our perspective on this child changes. If we only think we need to be motivated, if we think we can do it, we have the, we're, we've listened to the self-esteem doctrine of our world. We've listened to that expressive individualism of our society. And we believe that left to ourselves, with a little bit of help, a little bit of motivation, we can do it. Then we'll see that baby as cute, as, as, as gentle and kind, and, and maybe even moving, moving in his helplessness and in his tenderness. And then we'll see, we'll see His ministry as a ministry intended to motivate us. He gives us wisdom. He gives us good words. He gives us an example of how to live. And indeed for our world, that's enough, isn't it? For so many in our world, it's enough that Jesus says, love people. That's the message. That's the message. Love. Anything more is folly, make-believe, or even a mental illness. But when, you see, when, when we look deep inside of our hearts and go to the very depths of our being and discover there a darkness that we don't want to admit is real, then we'll see that baby in altogether a different way. Imagine someone holding before you a jar and saying all of the earth's water is stored in this jar. Would you believe them? You would think they were foolish. Or handing you a box of matches and saying the heat of every forest fire and lightning bolt is inside of this little box. Would you think they were right in their mind? Or holding a candle and saying the light of the sun is contained in its flame. You'd think they have a problem. Can you understand then why the world thinks we're foolish? When we say that in this baby, the fullness of God dwells. That here is the Creator made creature. Here is the Almighty made tender. Here is the All-Knowing made small. Here is this child born of a woman, but not of a man. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. The eternal Creator by whom all things were made. The wisdom of God and the very image of God. Here is He who is holy, 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 who dwells in unapproachable light beyond our ability to comprehend, comprehending us, indeed all of life, in Him. This is the child of whom the angels sing. The only one by whose might the curse of sin can be lifted, who only can carry it to the cross and end its power, freeing you from the fear of death, freeing you from the shame of sin, freeing you from the brokenness of this world. Is that the baby you see on Christmas morning? That's the challenge today. That's the challenge for every one of us today. Christmas comes with a baby. A baby? Easily dismissed. Easily passed over. Easily forgotten. Unless, unless you're like 
that child that comes over and has never been given a peanut butter and jam sandwich before. Because they see that thing as amazing, as great and glorious. They're hungry, not just for the food. They're hungry for the affection. They're hungry for the care. They're hungry for the love. The truth is, is if we think we have life by the tail and that all you need is a wee nudge in order to make your life better, all you're going to see on Christmas morning is a baby. But if we see the emptiness of this life and the weight of its grief, to know our helplessness in the face of our misery, if we know that we are ourselves broken, then we will find ourselves marveling at the gift of this grace. To borrow one more time from John Calvin. But if the stable gave no offense whatever to the shepherds so as to prevent them from going to Christ to obtain salvation or from yielding to His authority while He was yet a child, no sign, however mean in itself, ought to hide His glory from our view or prevent us from offering to Him lowly adoration now that He's ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. The shepherds saw Him and worshipped. How much more shouldn't we stand in awe of this Savior born on Christmas morning, dying on Good Friday, rising on Easter Sunday, and ascending to the very right hand of God where He now sits. Do you see your need of this King? And do you now offer your life to Him as humble, as ordinary as it all is? Or do you need more? Let's ask the Lord for His grace in prayer. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the gift of Your Son. What a gift. What a remarkable gift to those who have eyes to see. Lord, the truth is, many don't have eyes to see. Many want to see Jesus only as a baby. To stay at the manger and to never make it to the cross or to the empty tomb or to the hill outside of Jerusalem as Jesus ascends to the very right hand of Your glory. Lord, we know that we struggle with that too. We struggle with our dependence on Jesus Christ. We struggle with giving ourselves to Jesus Christ. We struggle with trusting in Jesus Christ. So help us again on this Christmas morning to be renewed in our faith and to be amazed all afresh and anew that this baby came to save us. For He is the Son of God in the flesh, come to bear the weight of our misery and the judgment against us on the cross of Calvary. And help us to trust Him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.